Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode number 23 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Hey guys, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in every Wednesday. It's great to have you back and thanks for sharing the show around. I appreciate it. If you're new to the show, there's new listeners coming every week. If this is your first time listening, this is a show where I get to have really deep, open, long format conversations with powerful men from around the world. I have a big mission in the world and my mission is to end male suicide in New Zealand. Now, in New Zealand... Uh, it's a really big issue and it's actually a big issue even at the moment in the media where our mental health system is collapsing, our suicide levels are at record levels and we're not really coping. So my very small contribution to try and help that is to bring really cool people on from around the world. These are not necessarily famous or people you've well-known people that you've heard of. These are just people that I see uh, have done really amazing, powerful things as men. They might have overcome addiction. They might have have a really amazing way of helping you find joy or fulfillment or your purpose. Or they might have been really successful in business. And I bring them on here and we have a long format, open, deep, powerful conversation and we talk about everything that's no holds barred and I don't edit the podcast you get the full unedited raw version of our conversation and to give you an idea I send an email out to the guys before I, I talk to them and I give them a very powerful context before they come on the show I ask them if this was the last conversation they were ever going to have what would they want the men listening to know I tell them they're going to have an opportunity to share about their lives and what they've learned. And then in the second half of the show, they can dive a little bit deeper into the topics they're passionate about and they what they think will really support and help you guys to improve your lives. Uh, so I hope you enjoy the show. I love making it and I love that you guys support it. This week, I feel so grateful to have a really special young Kiwi guy called Sam Ovens. Uh, Sam is a serial entrepreneur and you'll hear all about his story. He started uh, building businesses from a very young age to the point now where living in New York, his business will make $50 million this year. He's an incredible, incredible Kiwi success story and he's done it by just constantly working on himself and just constantly growing and developing better mindsets and never stopping his own personal growth. That's the, the lesson I got from from Sam's story. He gives a lot of insights after living in New York and becoming successful on the world stage. He gives a lot of insights about New Zealand and he doesn't hold back about what the challenges are and some of the cultural issues uh, that are occurring in New Zealand. Uh, some of you might get it, some of you might be confronted by it, some of you might find it interesting, but uh, I really appreciate Sam's open and candid honesty about the challenges that New Zealand faces. Uh, You're going to love this one. If you listen carefully, there are so many golden insights that you can use to drive yourself forward, to increase wealth, to make yourself feel better, to uh, become more successful, and it's all in here. Sam is uh, incredibly open and honest, and I'm so appreciative of him doing that. So as always, I asked Sam to start off by telling me a little bit about his upbringing in New Zealand and how he got into entrepreneurship. So enjoy this very personal conversation with the powerful Sam Ovens. Sure, so I was born and, and I spent my whole life in, in Auckland, in New Zealand. Um, and I 
went to uh, Sacred Heart College, which is like a heavy, it's an all boys school and it's like, it's all rugby, uh, like a real rugby culture. And uh, so, and I didn't really like rugby. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't like, uh, you know, running around in the mud and like, and tackling other people. I wasn't very big, especially compared to the other dudes at, at Sacred Heart. So, you know, I, I pretty much, uh, I pretty, and, you know, it, because everyone saw the rugby players as like the heroes, then I, I thought that I wasn't really anything. And like, that was, that was, an, that was a definitely a big running theme throughout my whole childhood up until I really discovered uh, business. You know, I always thought of myself as like weak and, um, and, you know, I got made fun of when I, when I'd play like rugby cause you know, I wasn't very good at it and people would laugh at, at me or whatever. And then it was, that was kind of the culture all the way through school. But then once I, once I got, once I really discovered business, a, well, an interesting thing to add was even like, even when we got older, like 17, 18, 19 and throughout college, there was a big, the rugby thing kind of became the drinking thing. <laughs> so that was now how you were like, cool is, is, you know, you would just drink a lot and you'd go out a lot. And like, if you didn't bring like a dozen beers to, to a, to a party or whatever, then you were considered like a pussy. And, but I wasn't very good at drinking either. So, I mean, this, so again, I, I was foot. kind of, yeah. And, but then I really discovered business when I was like 21 years old. And that was for the first time ever where I didn't have to just like abuse myself to, to achieve something and and be good at something. So, you know, I didn't have to go out onto a field running around in mud and, and tackle other people, and I didn't have to drink, like, a, a yard glass of beer um, in order to be cool. In business, to be cool, you got to use, like, uh, strategy, like mental strategy, and it was, it, was a, it was like a real mind game, and I really liked that because – like you've you've still got to be tough in business and business is like probably one of the biggest battlefields in, in the world really it's much more of a battlefield than than rugby is and everything because the game is way bigger there's way bigger players in it and there's like hardly any rules like rugby i mean you know and everyone's coming for you at every angle every day and that that excited me because it was like it was a way for me to be you know, to, to, to grow a sort of stronger self-image and believe in myself and think that I was, you know, and really think of myself as someone who was good at something and, and, and build a strong sense of character where I couldn't before, like throughout my whole life, because I didn't want to do those other things. And that was really awesome because that was somewhere where I could really get involved in it and really learn a lot and play a game, which made me feel confident in everything. And so that that was an interesting thing to find because up until I really found business, I always felt like kind of out of place. And were you very academic at school? Not, not really. I, not at all, really. <laughs> right. So was it like you, you went to university when you left school or was you a little bit lost after high school? No, I just followed what everyone did, was doing. Like all of my friends were going to do business. So I just went and did business. Uh, at I went to AUT and then I switched over to and I was doing a BCom, um, and I never finished it. I dropped out in my fourth year 
I think I've got like, like two or three papers left if I want my degree. <laughs> That's funny. And you so you talk about finding business or discovering business. What does that look like practically? Sure. Well, I grew up doing like the normal sort of thing. Like, you know, my teachers and everyone told me, if you want to be successful, you work hard at school, you get good grades, and then you go to university, you get a degree, and then you get a job at a corporate, and then you kind of build your work your way up the ladder. And so I thought that's what you were supposed to do. And so that's what I did. And then I got an internship in my fourth year of, of uh, university at Vodafone down in the Viaduct and their marketing team. And I was doing that and I thought like I'd made it. I thought, oh, this is, you know, I'm, I'm successful now because I've got this, this job and everything, get to work in a corporate building and, uh, you know, and I, I thought that was success. But then uh, I went, my girlfriend at the time, her best friend's dad, like owned a, an island in New Zealand. He's a very successful New Zealand entrepreneur. And uh, we went to his island like I, I thought rich was if you had like a BMW and you had a suit because my my dad was a builder and my mum was a special needs teacher and we we were sort of like below average uh, wealthy and um, and so I thought rich people just wore suits and had a BMW and made like made a hundred grand a year. I thought that was that was when you were like a, a king. And so going to this island and like seeing things like I saw a helicopter and I was like, man, like he had a helicopter landing pad there and everything. And he had this massive Island. And I was trying to figure out how much this stuff cost. And then I Googled like how much the helicopter cost. And it was like a $10 million helicopter. And I was like, Oh my God, like just this one little piece is 10 million. And then I was thinking like, even if I saved for my entire life working at Vodafone, and even if I did work my way up the ladder and became CEO, like, I, there's still no way that I could ever afford anything like this. And it was a it was a really surreal experience because I'd never seen such wealth and success ever before in my life. And then when I returned back to my corporate job at Vodafone, I just what well, I couldn't I just didn't feel the same. Like <laughs> I had been I'd seen too much. Yeah, I'd been I'd been beyond like the pale of the the state, and I'd seen I'd seen things that I couldn't unsee. <laughs> Little taste and, of success. Yeah, and so I couldn't just return back to normal. Uh, I tried, but it, it just it wouldn't sit well with me. And so I decided to Google what is an entrepreneur because I asked people at the island. I was like, "What does this guy do? How's he so rich?" And they were like, "Oh, he's an entrepreneur, and he started this company." And so then when I got back to back to Auckland, I Googled what is an entrepreneur. That's how little I knew about all of this. And it said like, you know, an entrepreneur is someone who starts their own business. And I started thinking, well, what sort of business could I start? And then I got an idea because my dad was unemployed at the time. So I was like, oh, I'll build a, an online job board because that was, I saw his problem was getting a job. So I thought, oh, okay, well, Solve I'll build an online. Yeah. And so I decided to quit my job at Vodafone and I dropped out of college without getting my degree. And I moved back home with my parents into their garage uh, because I was trying to cut back on costs and everything. I had like hardly any savings at all. And then I I just decided I was going to start my own business. And that's again. I love it. I love the island story because I guess what I think when I hear that is I could put 10, 20, three-year-olds in the same situation they go man this is fucking awesome and then just go back to work 
what do you think it was in you that made you went, man, I, I want a piece of this? I guess it was, it's a really good question. Um, I guess it was a, a feeling that like uh, this was something that was well suited to me because, you know, I, I going back to work, like I didn't, I didn't really have a good, a good career. Like a lot of my other friends had been working so hard at school. They had like, they had a really good grades. They'd become like a prefect and they had gotten a scholarship to go to university. They were doing like business and law and had such an immaculate like track record and GPA. And then they had gotten jobs at like prestigious firms and things. And they had a lot to lose. Right. And I think a lot of people have a lot to lose and or their, their situation isn't that painful. Like they, they, they're in a really good situation. Like, you know, they've got, they've got everything kind of going well for them. And, and then when you, when you're faced with a decision like that, it's, they've got a lot to lose. And with me, I really didn't have that much to lose. Like I didn't have good grades. I mean, like I couldn't get a job at like a really awesome place. And, and I didn't really have much of a career or, or things going for me. And I thought this entrepreneurship thing really stood out to me because it was like a, a rebel sort of way to stick it to the people who, <laughs> who, had, who had like always kind of always kind of made fun of me throughout school. Like, you know, saying that, you know, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't do well at university and because because I failed different papers and my teachers said I wasn't very good at school and and I was just like this is the ultimate way to stick it to everyone for for like mocking me about being stupid or being dumb or thinking that I wouldn't amount to anything I was like I can beat all of them if I figure this entrepreneurship thing out and so I guess it was a combination of wanting to stick it to most people and also um and stick it to the people who like you know called called you like a, called me a, a, like a pussy or a weakling or something for not playing rugby or not wanting to have a yard glass at my 21st birthday. All of these typical New Zealand culture things, which I didn't like. I was like, this is just stupid. I'm not going to do that. Um, and this was a way to sort of to stick it to everyone. <laughs> and and I liked that because I was like, because uh, I, I really wanted. Yeah, that's awesome. Just have that burning desire. The thing that's cool with entrepreneurship is there's no limit. There's no limit to how, like you said, you even look at a CEO's role and you can go, okay, if I'm the highest paid CEO in New Zealand, it's going to be a few million or whatever the number is. But when you look at entrepreneurship, it's like I can go, it's unlimited. You know, everyone looks at like the All Blacks as, in, as if they're like the kings. But if you're good at entrepreneurship, you can buy the All Blacks. <laughs> that's very true. Um great point that you said too like about having a lot to lose it's so interesting and if you circle back the older you get if you circle back to the people that were really successful at school or really successful at rugby it's interesting to see how that plays out like I work with a lot of high performers and people that are academics doctors surgeons lawyers whatever and there's a huge identity associated with that because they've been told at high school they're the best they're the smartest and now you kind of have to hold on to that and so if I if I'm to give up my job or if I'm to give up this identity then who would I be and it's almost like there's too much to lose like you said it's a really good point you know, you, you come back to the to a clean empty slate right and for people who have built up good good strong characters like it's kind of a wipe but because I didn't have really anything <laughs> um I was like this is sweet I got 
I get a, I get a, I get a free chance. So before I was thinking like, oh, I'm, I'm screwed because I, I have a bad GPA. I didn't do that well at school and I'm not very good at academic stuff. So I was, my track record and my identity was like, it wasn't serving me. It was kind of detracting me. And so this was a way to escape my identity and build a new one. Yeah. It's awesome. It's, um, it's such a growth, growth mindset as well. Yeah. I love it. So where do you go from there? So you start this, um, job ads board business and obviously that's a massive success. Oh no, that the chalkboard billions. website was a failure. <laughs> so I spent, I even, I spent all the money I had. I had to sell my car to even put more money into it, and I got all the credit cards I could, and I took a loan from my uh, from my nana um, for like uh, how much was it? I think it was two lots of five grand, so like ten grand. And so I and that and I spent a whole year. I was working like twelve hours a day for an entire year, twelve months working on this thing and i spent every dollar i had and more i got into debt had a massive student loan too and then finally at like the 12 month mark i thought okay well now it's time to go out and start selling this thing to people and then i went out to start selling it to people and then everyone was just like oh, this is cool but i don't need it and i was like oh well, what's what's going on why doesn't anyone why do people think it's cool but why don't they need it and everyone told me this and i was like shit, what, what have I done wrong? Uh, and what I figured out after like trying to sell it to people was that I had, I hadn't really tested my idea with the market before really going all in and building it. Like I had this idea basically from just observing my dad and, and that was it. And I thought, okay, well, because I think it's good and because my parents think it's a cool idea too. And my friends think it's a cool idea. I thought, well, it's going to work. And so I went all in and built it and then went out to the market and faced the the harsh reality that they didn't need it, but they thought it was cool. And that's when I learned that people just thinking something's cool isn't enough. Like people don't pull out their their wallet and their credit card for just things which are cool. They need to really need something in order to to you know to part with their money. And so that taught me a massive lesson in business. Uh, was that you You can't just come up with cool ideas and you can't just come up with things which you think people want. Like you have to really go to the market first and find what they need and then kind of come in and be a provider of that. So instead of just coming up with cool ideas, you really need to solve people's problems. Hmm, that was a great lesson. Yeah, it was a painful one, but that's how all good lessons come, right? Yeah, well, how did you deal with that? I mean, you know, obviously, but so many people can't deal with that, and that's when they give up, go back to the job or whatever the example well, is. Well, I can't deal with that. <laughs> like, I can't deal – I don't know how people can not deal with, with – like, to me, it's like – to me, failure sucks and everything. I mean, I don't like it, but the ultimate failure is giving up. Mm. And so I get – you know, I've been kicked in the face, like, so – Thousands of times. It happens to me every day still. Something, you know, little things go wrong all the time, or I have an idea and it doesn't work, or, you know, there's a, there's issues with stuff. I mean, there's nonstop failures. And, you know, it's just part of, of doing anything awesome. Like, if you're going to strive to do great in anything, you're going to come across tons of hurdles. 
and they're going to suck. But that's what makes it so awesome. It's like I've just, I've found that you know all the greatest uh, all the greatest like pleasures in life are always hidden behind the most painful like barriers. Mm. And these ones, uh, I I had nothing to lose, right? I mean. Like going back to my job, I didn't even think I could do that because I just quit, and I it didn't really have I didn't have a degree and I didn't have an awesome track record, so I wouldn't have been able to get much of a job, and I didn't have I haven't I hadn't built a career or anything, so I was like, if I go back and get a job, it's going to really suck, and I was just like, I may as well just have another go. So how did how did it actually play out? Did you just fold the business? Did you end it? Did you get some money out of it? Oh, I didn't make any money. The only person who bought anything was my friend, and it was only five bucks. So, and I, so that was that was a massive like failure. Yeah. Um, and so I made abs- I lost all of my money and got into debt on that one, and it took me a year. So it sucked, but it didn't really suck that bad thing. Like thinking back on it now, because I was just like, well, let's just go again. I because I because I, I was I was more excited by the lesson I had learned. Mm. I was like, oh, I've, that's what I did wrong. And so I was in a hurry to start another business so I could test my new hypothesis about going to the market first. And so I just shut down that business, which wasn't very hard to do because it didn't have anything. <laughs> um, and then I I decided to go out and speak to the market first. And what I'd found at my job at Vodafone is that there wasn't any good places to get food or lunch around there. And I had always wanted like a an office lunch delivery thing of my favorite like restaurants around around the place like like uh, Merc- Mercury Plaza and stuff like that um, and so I decided well I'll start in an office lunch delivery business because I knew that was a problem I knew everyone else in the building like I was part I was one of the members or the participants inside that market so I was kind of scratching my own itch and I knew that was an issue and I knew there'd be demand uh, so I started this business and, you know, we'd just source uh, meals from restaurants and then we would deliver it to offices. But I did it. I only offered it to the Vodafone building uh, because I just knew that that building was in a unique location in the city and it it didn't have anything around it. And that way we didn't have uh, lots of distribution issues because we only had to go to one building from one restaurant. And so I started that business and that one worked. Like people bought it, people started talking inside the company and and telling other people about it. And we started to get lots of customers. We started to get too many customers because, you know, we had to deal with so many logistics, like meals. Like it taught me a massive lesson that I never want to ever be in the food business ever. And so that was for the first time I had a business that was actually making money and it would make decent money, like more than I made at Vodafone. And the problem was is that it couldn't scale. Like we got to a certain point, we were still only serving, well, at, at this point we were serving the Vodafone in the telecom building. Um, and you had to have a Vodafone.co.nz or telecom.co.nz email to use the service. So that's how we restricted it like that. And I, I was like, well, this time around, I've figured out something that works. Like it was a good lesson that solving a, solving a problem for people is how you make money. Because I knew that was a problem. My hypothesis was proven by the fact that people were buying things. Uh, but the thing I had overlooked was its potential for scale. And as soon as we like, we could have scaled it, the demand was there, but the business model couldn't take it. 
like the restaurants couldn't make any more food and uh, the our delivery system, like trying to deliver meals and keep them hot and all of this, like all of that stuff didn't work and the business just hit a point and it couldn't make any more money. And I also hated it because dealing with food and people who say that their pad thai doesn't have enough chicken in it, you know, like just petty stuff like that pissed me off. <laughs> and and so I decided to I'd, – I'd learned another lesson this time. I was like, aha, I've proven my hypothesis that you need to find a market need. And I was stoked that I'd figured that one out. But I made another mistake, which was overlooking the scalability. And so I decided to sell that business to this guy in Wellington who was running a similar sort of office lunch delivery business. And I had a way better business model and, and everything for doing it. So I sold it to him for not much money at all. I think I only sold it to him for like uh, 20 grand or something, which wasn't much money, but I was just glad to get anything from it. He and just so I could business. walk away and yeah, for 20 grand, which is just pretty funny. Mm. And so now I had some money and now I was, I had confidence too, because I had, so I'd figured I got faced with a problem in the first instance where I had a failure. And then I had a, I decided to have another go and I solved that problem. But then I faced another problem. And so I didn't really care that the second business failed because I had learned massive lessons and I was like kind of on a roll now where something I hypothesized was proven to be true. And so I had a bit of confidence. Going through your own personal MBA. Yeah, exactly. And starting to get some confidence in myself that I can make something work. And so I uh, went back to the drawing board and I was like, okay, well, this time around I need to find – I need to solve a problem that – I need to solve a problem for people, but it needs to be scalable. And so I thought, well, what's scalable? And I thought, well, software, technology is infinitely scalable. And I didn't want to deal with food or driving cars around, anything like that, which just wasn't me. I'm not very good at logistical stuff. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to start like a software business. And then I just chose the property management market. And I started calling them and emailing them. And I just said, hey, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I just want to do some research. Uh, what are the most painful problems that you face day to day as a property manager? And I'd just call them up and I'd just listen. I just wanted to know about problems. And people told me about all their different problems. People just tell you anything when you're not trying to sell them something and you're you're interested in them. Like people mm. love talking about themselves. And so people told me all sorts of stuff. And I spoke to like 20, 30 property managers. And then after I spoke to like 20 or 30 of them, I was like, whoa. I've noticed a real pattern here. Almost all of them hated property inspections and almost all of them like just said this to me. They were like, the this property inspections are like the bane of my existence. I have to basically go to a property, use a clipboard, pen and paper, use a digital camera, like go through the whole house, check all of these things off, come back to the office like uh, type everything up in a template on Word, import the photos onto my desktop, format them into Word, save this as a PDF, and then email it to this owner. And most property managers manage 120 properties, and they have to inspect them three times a year, which is 360 of these things every year, which is more than one a day, especially when you count like the the average uh, working year and the weekends off and, and whatnot. You're looking at like four inspections a day, like – 
and and they're they're tedious tasks and they're not avoidable. Like people had to do them. It's the law for property management companies. And I was like, whoa, everyone's got this problem. It was a widespread issue present throughout the whole industry and there wasn't a solution to it. I thought, well, this is something because I'd, I'd learned, I'd been trained to find widespread issues in markets that were unsolved and then come in as a supplier to, to solve it. Uh, and this one was better. This one, I had, I knew I'd covered my mistake from my first business by solving a need and doing research. And I knew I'd covered my problem from the second business, uh, which was making sure it was scalable and technology driven instead of like logistics and food driven. And so I thought, okay, this is a good one to do. Um, the the sec- This time around, I was getting smarter and I thought, well, if I want to really validate this business idea, I need to sell it before it exists. So I made, I designed on like, on Keynote, on Apple, uh, on a Mac, like what the app would look like, the different screens and whatnot. And then I went around to different property management companies and I told them about what I was going to build. And I said, you know, I'm going to build this and everything. And it's, you know, I'm going to put my money in and, and, and develop this thing. But you know, I, I need to know that this is something that people really want and need. And so I'm offering you this special pricing. Uh, here's what the normal pricing is once I go live with this thing in about six months time. Uh, however, if you sign up in advance, if you pay three months in advance for the software, I'll give you 20% off for life. And I just went around and pitched it to people like this. And I managed to sell like, I managed to sell a few people. And they signed up and there was there was a massive interest in what I had and that was that was real validation that this business was going to be successful because if you can sell something at a concept stage then you're you know you're going to be able to sell it when it exists right because uh, it's quite hard to sell a concept because yeah. it's just an idea and so I thought all right awesome I found it then I found developers in India and stuff and we built the product um, then we gave it to the people who we pre-sold it to. Then we started selling it to more people. I was just cold calling property management companies and emailing them. And we started selling people. And uh, what happened from there? Where did you Where did you learn all of these skills? Like what, what's going on behind the scenes? Are you just reading books? Are you self-educating? Are you doing courses to learn sales, to learn like the marketing techniques and everything? Or is this just all trial and error? Books and trial and error. So, you know, I, I just Googled like 10 best sales books in the world, <laughs> the top 10 books. This is how I learn anything. I just want to find, if I know a discipline, like I'm like, okay, well, I suck at sales. I need to learn sales. So I go to Amazon and I look for, or I go to just Google search and what are the t- top 10 of all time sales books? Go to Amazon, buy all 10 of them and then read them all. And then notice the what I like to do is notice the things which are universal among the top 10 books and if you can find some principles that are universal among the top 10 books in any one discipline then you know the fundamental principles of any discipline and once you understand that you you pretty much got it sounds so simple but it's like it's an amazing piece of advice yeah, that's it, what all good advice sounds like, right? It almost sounds too simple to be to be good. But that's kind of it's the world that we live in now. It's not learning things through schools or universities. It's having everything's available. Everything's available almost for free 
or you know the books that you're talking about are probably fifteen dollars so <laughs> everything's accessible it's just do you have the curiosity and do you have the um inclination to go out and self-learn like that to go and figure it out for yourself yeah and you've got to have the ability to suspend disbelief too like you've got this thing in your mind all the time which is like you're going to fuck this up um <laughs> and you've also got everyone else pretty much telling you that when you when you start because you just attract it to yourself when you think it right like if you think that you're going to screw it up it's like everyone's on you but you have good reason right like your your businesses have not gone that well you have no evidence to suggest that you're successful at that point. So it's easy to tell yourself that story. Yeah. Plus I was like very shy and introverted and I didn't have really any strong sense of character. So <laughs> like it was, it was extremely painful for me to talk to people. Like I would put off talking to people for weeks and I'd be, I'd like, couldn't get out of bed. Um, and so it, it sounds so when, when you like talk an, about like going and visiting these businesses and asking them questions actually behind the scenes, that's pretty terrifying. Yeah, it was like more terrifying than like playing like first 15 rugby for me, <laughs> um, which was pretty terrifying. And so it, like in hindsight now, it, it, I might be making it sound simple and everything. But, you know, at the time I was scared out of my mind. You know, I was petrified and... Like it really had, it really took everything I had within me to even call people on the phone or yeah. send people an email because I was just so full of self-doubt and like all the voices in my head were saying like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And all my, all these other people around me were saying like, oh, this isn't going to work and all of this stuff, um, which is normal. That, that really happens to everyone when they try and step out and try something new. You know, I had to go through that too. So it was like two battles really. Well, there was really three battles. One was a battle within myself trying to uh, muster up the courage and the motivation to to take action and to get out of bed and to believe in myself. Uh, that, was, that was probably the biggest battle of them all and the hardest one. The second battle was a battle of like education because – I hadn't paid much attention in school or college, so I didn't really know anything about about anything. Um, and so I had to, to I had to learn a lot of stuff, like how to sell, like how does a business work, like how do you market things, how do you do all of this different stuff. I you know I had to learn all of that, and that was a there was an education gap for sure. I had to learn a whole bunch of information, uh, but I found that one quite easy to do. And then the third one was the battle of just taking action in the real world. So applying the lessons which you've learned from your reading and everything in real life. And that was a, a hard one too, but a lot because of my, the battle which was happening within me because I didn't have much belief or courage or anything. So I, I, I knew what I needed to do, but I couldn't really go out and do it. And it was very painful, probably the most painful period of my entire business entrepreneurship career but once you get like one little signal that you know what that you're that you're right, you, that's that confidence starts to build up. It feeds the next step. Yeah, you just need those little wins, and you just need them to keep trickling in and keep like that's what gets you fueled up. So it was really you would just um, feel the fear and do it anyway, kind of thing. Just keep overcoming it and and push through and push through and push through, knowing that you wanted to be successful and this is what the price was. Yeah, and there's no way around the fear. Like you, it doesn't matter how much you meditate. It doesn't matter like 
how much books you read on on psychology or self-help or anything. I mean, those things are useful, but they never get rid of it. They might they might tame it down a little bit, but they never get rid of it so that you can just take action without any feeling of fear. And you I think a lot of people get stuck in this trap. They 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 believe that if they read enough self-help books or if they do enough preparation that there isn't going to be an obstacle, but there always is. And the best way to get over the obstacle is just to smash it down, just bowl straight through it. And once you get past it, it, it's the most amazing feeling in the world. The bigger the obstacle, the better the feeling of ecstasy on the other side. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, you've. I mean, it was extreme. It's extremely hard for me to do, but I, I hadn't like, you know, I'd burn my ships. I, I had, I had no choice really. Yeah. It's interesting that there's a piece there for me that um, as well around the fear thing, around community and surrounding yourself with people that are doing something similar or that are two steps ahead in the process that can go, hey, give you a bit of reassurance or just push you or just say, hey, do it, stop messing around, hold you accountable. Did you have any of that? When did that piece come in for you? I looked for that. And in New Zealand, there's a really shitty like business owner and entrepreneurship community <laughs> because... I said, I apologize to any of them if they're listening to this now, but I went to some meetups that, that were happening, like different, different meetups. I won't name the, the events or anything, but everyone I talked to was like pretty much had the same problem I had. And they were like more obsessed. With me. They were trying, they were obsessing about raising money or like building this massive product or like focusing on development and technology before selling anything. And everyone felt like sales was really not even necessary. They felt like selling something was kind of beneath them. They felt like, no, 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 I'm an entrepreneur. Here's my idea. And, you know, I, I need an investor and I'm not going to sell it. Like, hey, I've got the idea here. And that was the sort of mentality I found. And I noticed that a lot of these people, I, I, I started questioning them, like, how long have you been doing this? Tell me about your history. I was trying to establish some sort of timeline to these characters. And I, I found that they were stuck in this perpetual cycle. Like, a lot of them were just kind of filling up on dopamine from coming to these events and talking shit with other people and drinking coffee and stuff. And I was like, this isn't good. This is feeding the addiction. <laughs> uh, so I got the hell out of there. I was like... This is not – these guys aren't killers. Like these, these, guys are, these guys are people who are too scared to do the one thing which has to be done and they're making themselves feel – they're like – they're making themselves feel not bad by kind of getting all together and, and sharing this like I'm an entrepreneur uh, attitude just to make themselves feel better about not taking that action. And it was really obvious to me because it was my problem and I didn't want to, I didn't want to feed that addiction. So I got the hell out of there and never went back. And I decided that I, d I knew what I had to do. I just had to conquer this thing. I had to sell shit and make money. And I knew exactly what to do, but the, there was so much fear around doing it, selling stuff. Uh, there's often a lot of fear around money. New Zealand has a real thing about money. There's a lot of taboo around it. Uh, you know, like rich people are kind of like snob, they're considered snobs or like, you know, it's, it's New Zealand has a, like a tall poppy mentality about making money and people don't talk about money. Like if you go out to a 
to a bar or something, you don't see guys kind of sharing about how much money they make and, and having competitions about that. It's more like how many beers did they drink or like all that sort of stuff. And so there was a lot of a lot of issues within me to try and make money because I kind of had these feelings that, you know, money was kind of evil or like making money was evil or wrong and that you shouldn't be talking about money and, and all of this stuff. Uh, and it was really hard to get over that. And I couldn't find any communities of of killer entrepreneurs in New Zealand, like just hungry like people who just did whatever it took and just, just executed and made money and just like they weren't like image entrepreneurs. I found a lot of image entrepreneurs in New Zealand who were just like they had the label of an entrepreneur and they were kind of famous in the community for being an entrepreneur, but they were poor. And I was like, I don't want that. I want to be a real entrepreneur. I want to be rich, actually, not even just perceived rich, like real rich. And so I, I couldn't find that in New Zealand. I'm sure it exists, but I, I couldn't find it. And so I just decided I had to do this like on my own. And I knew what I had to do. And I just had to muster up the courage and do it. Awesome. So where does it go from there? So you, you sell the real estate, uh, so the, the, the property management company, or you keep it? Is it profitable? Yes. Yeah, so I did that for like two years and it was making money and it was growing. It was an awesome business. We started selling it into America, Australia, all of that stuff. And it did well. But then I, I took, in the beginning stages of the software company, I started doing like some consulting jobs on the side because I'd started to learn a lot about sales and marketing. And I felt like I was pretty dangerous at those things. Like I'd gotten pretty good at it. <laughs> And because I taught myself from Americans, right? Like I'd, I'd found the best American like salespeople and marketers and stuff. And I learned from them, from their books. And when you take that thinking back to New Zealand, you're just, you're a savage compared because everyone's kind of soft in New Zealand when it comes to being a really good businessman. Like our businessmen are kind of soft in that regard. Like they're not hungry and, and like Americans are. Like Americans think that like a million dollars is nothing. In New Zealand, it's like that's that's massive, right? And so I had this mentality that I learned from America. Who who were the people you learned from at that time? Who were the sales gurus? I really well, I learned like marketing from David Ogilvie, like his books, and he he had started Ogilvie and Mather, which was billions, and he was he was like the best copywriter in the world. Uh, and sales, I read books like Spin Selling and uh, like. Uh, zero resistance selling from people who were like pretty bold, courageous, like salesmen, and they were real good and hungry. Yeah. Because I taught myself all of that and I sort of adopted an attitude that I found in Americans, I was pretty dangerous back in New Zealand at selling and marketing because I was aggressive and I could help get people real good results because cause I had such an aggressive growth mindset. And so I started consulting businesses on like how to do digital marketing and how to improve their sales. Uh, just like all sorts of businesses. I had plumbers. I had, um, I had a, like a rug company like that sold luxury rugs. I had like all, all sorts of different businesses, just local businesses. And I got good results for them. And then what happened is people started, people started asking me like if I could teach them how to do that because I started doing some interviews about Snap Inspect, which was my software company. And people asked me, like, how did you fund the development of your software company? 
And I told them, well, I, I pre-sold it like to people and that's how I got some of the money. But then to bridge the, the money gaps in other, at other times and other stages, I, uh, I used my consulting services. And I went, whenever I needed money, I'd just go out and sell some consulting deals and then use that money to, to develop the software because it gets pretty expensive developing software. Yeah. And then people seem to be fascinated by that because it seemed to be everyone's issue. Like they were building an app or a product or whatever, but money was the issue. And they wanted a way to kind of generate money without having to go to investors and all of that. And so these people started approaching me, entrepreneurs, and they were like, hey, can you teach me how to get consulting deals? And I ignored it for a while because um, I didn't think anything of it. But then this one guy kept persisting. His name was Stanley, and he just kept – and then he kept asking me. And then he he offered to pay me a 1000 bucks, a 1000 US, if I taught him how to, to do it. And I said, all right, because he was offering to pay me. I was like – fine. And so we got on Skype and we, I had six one hour phone calls with him over the course of six weeks. And I told him everything I knew about how I was doing it. Um, it, I didn't create a course or anything because I just told him we were just having a conversation and he listened and then he went and started doing it. And I didn't think it was going to work for him at all. Cause I thought, you know, there was, it might have been the New Zealand market or it might have just been because I was special or something. I don't know. I, I didn't think other people could do it. And Stan, But then Stanley went and got a client in like his third week of these calls with me. And the client he got was bigger than any client I'd ever got. So he got a $10,000 US deal. And the biggest deal I'd ever got was like six grand New Zealand. And I was like, what the hell? I was like, this is ridiculous. And that really showed me something. It showed me that there was massive value in teaching people this process because people could use it and, and make money for themselves. And then so I started have I started sharing the recordings of these calls with other people because I recorded the calls, I put them in a Dropbox folder, and then I start, people started coming to me and like asking if I could help them. And so I offered to sell them the a link to like the Dropbox folder so they could listen to me and Stanley's calls. And I sold that for a grant and people bought it and people like, like loved it, even though it was the most scrappy ghetto thing I've ever built in my life. And because the information was valuable and it was unique and people started getting results. And at the stage where I had about 12 customers in there, I was like, this is, I'd, I'd been trained how to see opportunity at this point because I saw it, I saw what failed and I saw what, what worked and I, I knew that you needed to solve a problem for people and that they had to really want it bad. And this was the first time ever that I had people actually coming to me and like begging me to sell them something. That had never happened to me before. It was always me chasing people. And I was like, whoa, this is something. I've got something here. Uh and so I decided to turn it into like an online course. And so I turned it into a six-week online course and I put more attention and time into it and everything and then made it like a, I used a software so that people had to log into a portal and everything instead of just giving them a Dropbox link. And I made like slideshows and stuff and did proper videos instead of just giving people a Dropbox link uh, or just having recorded Skype calls. And then that program started to sell like a lot. Like I started to make the most money I'd ever made in my life with this program. 
and it got like word started spreading and other people started buying it and it started making a lot of money and at the time it was making it got to the point where it was making way more money than my software business i was spending probably 5% of my time on the on the online training business and 95% of my time on the software business but like 90% of my money was coming from the training business <laughs> and only 10% from the software business because you have to reinvest so much money in software businesses that the profit isn't very good. But with online education pro training programs, like the profit margins are insane. And I was like, this is just too good to uh, have a balance like this. I was like, I need to put all of my time into this, into this training. So I had taken on a business partner, uh, a developer for, soft, uh, for Snap Inspect, my property inspection software company. So I decided, you know, I, I, I offered it to him to buy my share out and, um, and he bought my share out off me. And then I was, you know, I, I'd sold, liquidated my shares in that. And so I had like a decent, I had a lot of money at this point because my, my online course was really selling well and I just liquidated my position in, in Snap Inspect and I had a product which was on a roll. And that's where things really took off for me. And I became a millionaire that, that year, the first time, the first, within that year that that happened, I made my first million bucks. And how old and, were you at uh, that point? Uh, how old would I have been? I think I was like 24. Yeah, I think I made my first million when I was 24. Awesome. That must have been insane. Yeah, it was awesome. I got to like, I bought a Ferrari, which is like the first thing that any <laughs> any poor kid that ever makes a million dollars buys. <laughs> because it's the thing they've always dreamed about. And I bought a boat and I bought lots of stupid shit because it's just, you, I had to get it out of my system. You yeah, know, I'd always, you do. yeah, I'd, I'd crave these things my entire life and now I had the money, so I had to go out and do it. Do you remember the moment, like was the actual ticking over a million dollars an actual moment? Was it something you added up? Was it a realization? It was really when I made, when I made like my first, well, it was. I got to one stage when I was selling this program where I made like three hundred and forty grand in one month, and I was just like, "What the fuck just happened?" <laughs> because I like I had never seen anything like that before, um, and I didn't have a million dollars at this point. This was at this like when I was first starting this thing, and I like you know for my software company to do that, it, it was gradual. You know, it just didn't have these spikes and surges like that. And I was just like, whoa, I've got this much money um, and I can actually use it because I, I don't have expenses and I don't have a team. It was just a one-man business. And I guess you're confident that more money is going to come in. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I had my doubts, but I, I was pretty sure that I could keep doing this. And, uh, and you, get a, you get a certain, like, like God-like feeling when, when that first happens to you, you know? Sure. Like, you start feeling... You're, it gives you one hell of a boost in confidence. And when you've got that boost, like, you start doing real well. Uh, and it's you've got to be careful that you keep that there and you don't mess it up because cause you can lose it. Like, I've, I've watched a lot of people get it and then lose it. Like, I, I lost it because um, I, I got sloppy with, with things, um, and it's quite hard to get back. And so, yeah, like, I had that that godlike feeling because I'd, I'd just made, I was making more money than like the, than anyone at that point. And I was 24, I had a Ferrari and like I was rich. Um, 
And I thought I was like the man. And like, I definitely was real cocky at this point. <laughs> and like, probably way too cocky, way too much ego. But it was a good change from having absolutely no belief in myself. And then I, I pretty much, you know, just kept doing that. And then I got to a point where I kind of messed it up because I cared too much about like my personal life and everything. Like, you know, I wanted to go out on the weekends. I wanted to, I wanted to always be partying and because I wanted to enjoy this, this point in my life. Um, and I was always out on my boat and always going around and eating out and having and driving around in my cars and stuff. And I kind of neglected my business and it got to the point where I, um, I, I definitely like slipped in my business side. I was slipping. I was like letting things, I was letting like problems keep building up there. Um, and I wasn't really saving any money at all. Like whatever money I made, I'd spend. And even though I was making a shitload, it's amazing. Like it's, that was a good lesson that you can, doesn't matter how much money you've got. If you're sloppy, you can lose it all. And I was just lucky that I could see myself going down a path where like I would have just, I would have lost it all because I wasn't reinvesting anything in my business. I wasn't trying to improve myself. And if you don't improve yourself, even if you're awesome, over time you're going to lose because someone else is going to come up and take it all off you. And so I, I kind of got like a wake-up call after a while after, you know, I kept doing this. And I was like, all right, I need to get real. And, and I was also starting to feel a bit kind of depressed because I wasn't really happy anymore. This, this thing had kind of worn off. I wanted to get back to growth. And so I was, I was like in that period of like limbo for like a year, a whole year, just partying all the time and thinking I was awesome because I was rich. Um, and I definitely did it for too long. And then I just decided, all right, time to grow up. And so I sold everything I had and uh, like literally just sold everything. And I had bought so much shit. <laughs> like I had multiple cars, like I had just, just dumb stuff. Um, like I had this apartment full of stuff and like uh, I had all of these things and I, I liquidated everything I had. I, I kept no trophies from the past. I just decided it was time to clear everything out. And then I, uh, then I decided that I was going to move to America because what happened is I had, I was, I was doing well and I was making money. But I found that in Auckland, especially like the social group I was in and, and stuff, people kind of looked at me like I was, I was successful and I was really good at what I was doing. And I felt kind of like a king. But there was a problem with that. And it's like, it's kind of like being the biggest boat in the marina, right? Like when you're the biggest boat in the marina, you don't really have any desire to get a bigger boat. But when you're the smallest boat in the marina, you're always looking at the big ones and, and you want to upsize. And so I was kind of like the biggest boat in the marina. And, and I thought, well, where would I be the, the shittiest little boat in the world? And I was like, New York. <laughs> I was like, if I, even if I sold everything I had and got all of my savings together and everything, like if I moved to New York, I'd be poor. I'd be a nobody. And so I decided to do that. And so I sold everything I had, literally just had uh, one suitcase and decided to move to New York and move there with just one suitcase uh, and with my girlfriend as well, who had like, uh, I think she had two suitcases. Um, and 
started from scratch. It was like a, a new identity again. It was like a fresh wipe. I had no friends over here, so no one thought I was I was like successful. Like I was used to being able to live like a king in New Zealand because everything's so cheap there. Now I was in New York and I was freaking out because the apartment rent, like the apartment I got was like a lot of money for New Zealand dollars, like unheard of. There isn't a place in New Zealand you can rent that's this expensive. Like not even anything, not, there are no houses, nothing that exists that is expensive is just like an, an okay sort of apartment in New York. And all everything's so expensive here and I had to adjust from New Zealand dollars to US dollars. And that's a big difference too, because you're used to calculating your money in, in New Zealand, and now I had to convert it all to US, and it just took a big haircut. <laughs> yeah. And so I was feeling poor again. But I liked that, because that lit the fire back up in me, and I had no identity here. No one knew me, no one thought I was anything, and I was nothing here. And that that was really good for me. And so I really started, I started like getting hungry again, And also the big thing, which I didn't even notice at the time in New Zealand, but like New Zealand has a a real bad alcohol problem. Like you don't think it when you're there. When you move to America, people just don't drink like that. Like people don't go out on Fridays and Saturdays and just get blind drunk or pick up dozens of beers and just take them home and sit in front of the TV. Like no one does that here. And I kind of still bought a bit of that attitude with me at first and we went out to like dinner with some different people and they were kind of like, they didn't drink. And they kind of looked a bit funny at, at me when I wanted to drink lots. And I was like, whoa, everything's different over here with this drinking stuff. And so very quickly, I, I'd stopped drinking. Like within like a, a two months, I, I, because I hadn't drunk at all, because that wasn't really the culture, I just lost all, um, all desire to drink anything. And so now I haven't had like an alcoholic drink for about a year and a half. And that was huge for me because like being hung over really ruined my business in New Zealand because I because it was it's normal for people to go out on Fridays and Saturdays. And even the successful people do that too, you know, like that's just the culture. Even the grown ups do it. And over here that's not the culture. And it it hurt my business in New Zealand because if you're a bit foggy on Monday or Tuesday, then you're you're not as sharp. And over here, because I wasn't doing that at all, I was sharp. And so I didn't have any, I wasn't drinking anything. I had a fresh identity again and um, I had no friends or anything over here. So it was just a a fresh start again, kind of like quitting my job at Vodafone. And that was, it was everything I needed. And that's when my massive growth curve happened. Like I, I was shocked. Like I did 50 times better than I ever thought I'd do. In my and when first you start, year. yeah, obviously you, you, you've, you must have gone through waves of anxiety and fear as you've kind of confronted how big and successful life, people, business are in New York. But you felt equipped and you liked that feeling. You liked that feeling giving you the drive back. Well, humans do like their best work when they're in like fight or flight, you know, like when, I, when, I'm, at, when I'm in a situation where I'm – I could get like wiped out and I, I, that could have happened in New York because I, I looked, if I didn't make any money for like, for like a year or two and I had to co- cover all the living costs and everything here, like I would have wiped out my savings. Yeah. And so I was kind of worried. It's a pretty good driver. Yeah. But in New Zealand, because the rent is so cheap and everything, like 
I could have lived for years, like 15 years off my savings there and still lived like a, a rock star lifestyle there. Um, you know, I had a boat and fancy cars and all of that. But over here, I, I was panicking and I wasn't even living much of a lifestyle. And that was really good for me because it kicked me into into gear. And I, I went back into like survival mode and I just started working real hard. And I also learned uh, like – New Yorkers have a work ethic, which is like nothing else. Like in New Zealand, I, our culture has a pretty weak work ethic too. Um, like, you know, you kind of get in at nine, you kind of finish at five, 5.30. It's, it's a late night if you finish at like seven, you know. And people often have a beer afterwards and go home and kind of, you know, watch TV and stuff. And it's very – no one really works in the weekends and – you know, around the January time in New Zealand, if you're trying to sell anything, all the businesses are closed. <laughs> businesses are closed because the people are off at the beach and whatnot. And in New York, it's like, man, no one's ever on holiday and people work. Like, people are always here are going to kick your ass. And so I started back in New Zealand, I'd only really work like nine to five, maybe sometimes a bit longer. But when I got here, I just started building a massive work ethic. And I started working like a bare minimum of like 14, 15 hours a day. And I'd work weekends too. And where did you start? Did you start the, the same old method where it's like, okay, I need to go and find out what some needs are in some businesses, you know, for consulting? I just continued my my um, online consulting course. So just teaching people how to consult or still teaching well, teaching them? people how to start their own consulting business. Because it was an online business, a lot of my customers were already in America. Right. And so I knew that there was way more money to be made in America than New Zealand. And so I moved over here and uh, I already knew what to do. I I just needed to sell more of this program. And now that I was on American time and I could relate to the U.S. market better than, than New Zealand because I was living here, I just started doing way better. And I just scaled up my business basically. And so what – can you give us an idea – today like where are you at now in terms of numbers in terms of your business yeah well this year we should do 50 million in sales 50 um yeah incredible yeah like if, and that's us man yeah so if you bring that back to new zealand it's like no businesses country. make that <laughs> like there's there's like hardly any businesses that make that there well that's awesome man congratulations well, where, where does your drive come from now going forward it comes from wanting to like wanting to be the best in the world at consulting so like i really discovered like when i lived in new zealand i had a small minded sort of attitude i just thought i just wanted to be better than like than than my friends and better than just my social circle right but and or maybe the best in new zealand but like when i got over here I was I got a I got a goal to be the best in the world at something cuz now I was like on a world stage. Like when you're in New York, I mean if you if you get to the top of New York, you're pretty much top of the world. And so I wanted to be the best in the world at consulting. Um and that's that's really the big thing that got me working because when you're not trying to just outdo your friends, when you're trying to just do something really big, like that gets you really motivated. And I think like what I see in New Zealand is people don't believe that they can compete on a world stage, but it's not true, right? Uh, it's it's definitely not true. I mean, you've got to – I don't think you can compete on a world stage in, unless you go and visit some other countries and come back to New Zealand. 
But I think the main issue for New Zealanders is they just don't go and look. Like, going and looking at America, like, I visited America multiple times before I decided to move there. And something about the country just lit a fire in me. And it was, it made me unique among people in New Zealand because it was kind of like I'd been beyond the pale of the state. And I'd seen things which others hadn't seen. And I knew things which others didn't know. And so when I was back in New Zealand, I was kind of um, like an enigma. I was I was different to other people and people couldn't really understand it. And that that's what made me really good. And I, I would definitely encourage all New Zealanders to go visit. Like, if you want to do good in business, you have to visit America because it's the place for all business. And it's so big, it just it blows your mind as a New Zealander like that how many people are here and how much business is here and how rich people are here compared to like New Zealand. And when you go back, you just won't be the same person. Yeah, I definitely have had that experience going to New York. Mm. One thing, I've been through your training and I loved it. It just, I thought it was so good. And one thing that I know you're big on is mindset, mindset training. And I know you're very proud of the mindset training that you've created in your course. Can you give us a few tasters about mindset and why you believe so heavily in that? Yeah, well, it's the main obstacle I had to over my own in my own growth. So that's why I that's why I stress it a lot. Because um, my belief is is that to do well in business or to do well in anything really is it's more of a battle of yourself than it is a battle of anything else. Like, you know, to get fit for sport or to get good at business, like you can read the books, you can do all of that stuff. It's pretty easy to to get real, to know what to do. The hard part's generally doing it. And what happens is once you know what you need to do and then you need to do it, like you start coming up against all of this resistance. It's like you you just don't feel comfortable. You're way outside of your comfort zone. And that was the main problem for me. I mean, it plagued my existence when I was trying to start my businesses. And I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't do these things. I was petrified. And what I really started to learn is that it was just this conflict of self. Like uh, I had defined who I was as a person because of my childhood and everything. Like people told me I wasn't good at school and I wasn't very smart and uh, I, my track record was that I wasn't very smart either. And I was shy. Like people knew me as a shy person who was awkward and all of that because I was. And I wasn't very outgoing or anything like that. I was pretty awkward. And so I had this identity in my mind of who I was. And it was very strong and defined because, you know, because I had because I'd been alive for 21 years. And, and I really thought I was this person. I think everyone thinks they are who they are. Um, it's it's very it's people think that who they are and what their habits and likes and preferences are. They think that's them, like that's actually who they are, and they they don't want to change it. People they hear what they have to do in entrepreneurship, like sell stuff, make money, and be hungry or aggressive or whatever, and and they're like, oh, that's not me. You know, I'm not very outgoing, or I'm not very smart at that, or I couldn't deal with that. Like people think that they can't do all of this stuff because that's not them. And like I came up against everything in entrepreneurship because I wasn't any of that. You know, I, I wasn't good at money. I wasn't good at math or finance or anything. I wasn't outgoing. And so I had to conquer myself. 
that was the biggest battle. I had to, I had to conquer myself and and build a new one. And so I had to learn all about like psychology and mindset and all of this stuff in order to see that who I thought I was wasn't really anything at all. It was just a building up of programming about beliefs. So like because I because I heard something once and because I played it over and over and over again in my mind for for ages. Like, you know, I, I remember when my teacher told me I was bad at times tables when I was like six. I I remember feeling embarrassed and I replayed that movie again in my head like a million times. And that meant that I didn't think I was good at math or numbers. Therefore, I failed math and everyone thought I was bad at it. So my belief was I'm useless at math and numbers. And then I thought because everyone had always said I was shy and outgoing and because I was awkward that that's who I was. And I realized that it was really just because I'd, I'd tricked myself into believing that I was. But I, I found out that I could actually change that and that I could change my character. And I, I discovered bit by bit that I wasn't anything and that I could be whoever I wanted. It just it was just building new habits and designing the character and then kind of growing into it. So I adopted this process where I would basically think forward about the goals I need to achieve for the year and then I would look at what actions are required in order to achieve those goals. And then based off the actions that I needed to do in order to achieve the goals, I looked at who I would need to become to, to take those actions. Because often I would have the goal, awesome, then I'd look at the actions, awesome, but then who I was at the time wasn't capable of taking those actions because it wasn't him, it was, it was outside of my comfort zone. It was out of character for me. And so what I did is I designed a character who could take those actions easy, like there would be nothing for the character to take in order to achieve the goal. And then I decided to become the character. So I, I, I discovered a really, a really new way of thinking when it comes to personal development and growth and success. Like most people just look at goals and then that's it. But in order to achieve goals, you need actions. And then some people, they think it's goals and then actions and then that's it. But it's very hard to do that. A lot of people set goals, they don't get them. A lot of people set goals and actions and don't get them. And the personal development space is, is like notorious for being known as like a woo-woo sort of place where it's all about feeling good and everything. And, and a lot of the people don't get results. And I really started to dig into that and I discovered, I created my own way of doing it, which was... I found out that I couldn't be successful as who I was. I found that in order to be successful, I needed to become somebody else. And so I developed this way of thinking where I would design my character. I would like write out exactly how he dressed, how other people would talk about him, how he would be perceived, and uh, how what strengths and weaknesses he would have, and, and even down to like how he dressed and spoke and did everything. And I, des I would design this character and then I would just grow into it. Like I would start trying to kind of act like this. It's kind of like, it's kind of like you know, if you're, if you're a, a movie um, actor and, you know, you get the script, you have to get into character, right? And movie characters quite often, they, once they get into character, they can't change out until the movie's done. Like mm -hmm. they remain in that character even when they're not on the set. And 
I, I really figured out how to do that and just stay in that character forever. And then until I needed to become another character. And so what I, I thought what I was doing was fundamentally wrong because, <laughs> because everyone says that you should be yourself, right? Like every, all my friends and stuff were like, dude, you're the biggest fraud and fake and imposter ever. You know, this isn't who you are. They're like, we know who you are and you're not this person. Why are you pretending to be like this? And, you know, everyone was kind of on my back about this because everyone always says things like, uh, be yourself and stick to your roots and don't forget who you are and be authentic. You know, there's all these people that say this shit, like be authentic. But if I was being my authentic self at that time, it sucked. So why would I want to be authentic? I wanted to be... I wanted to become something bigger. And I think when you're making improvements to your character, there's no problem about being inauthentic. And so if you want to grow, then you kind of have to be inauthentic for a little bit. And then what happens is that becomes authentic because you start to adopt it in every facet of your life. And then that you've got a new self, a new character. And I found in order to succeed in business, I had to do this. There was no other way around it. I did it despite what, how wrong I thought it was. I thought I was just doing something real messed up um, because of just how like, other people would speak about what I was doing. They're like, Be, why aren't you being yourself or you've changed or, um, you know, why don't you just remember who you are and come back and be normal? <laughs> you know, people said stuff like this. You're threatening um, their, um, their perspective. Yeah, well, I, I figured out that I was threatening their identity. Right. Because if I kept changing mine, then that was kind of evidence to them that theirs could be changed, too. But because they liked their identities so much, even though it wasn't really serving them, they their identities put their guards up and started to fight. Right. Um, and that's where all the hate comes from. And, and New Zealand has it bad. That's why there's that tall poppy syndrome. You talked about so, it especially around the money, the money mindset and that negative money mindset that New Zealanders have. How did you overcome that one? Because to be at your age, being able to deal with a $50 million income and not sabotage yourself, you have to have some pretty strong mindsets to deal with that, right? Yeah, well, I mean, for one, like when I was in – one reason I left New Zealand is I wanted to get away from this shitty way of thinking where everyone thinks that rich people are dicks and everything. Um, and so I, I wanted to get out of that and it's small mind minded there, you know, like the, the socialite groups and stuff are so lame. Like they're these small little groups of people who like, who really have quite a tragic like existence, but they think they're like the king of the world. And then it like, and there's so much gossip and stuff there and it's cause it's such a small island. But then when you go overseas, you realize how insignificant everyone is there. And you realize that even the biggest socialites in New Zealand would just be, like, laughed at in America. <laughs> like, they're nobodies. And it's really refreshing because the people who you used to kind of feel, like, intimidated by in another country, they're nobodies. And that I, – I really liked that because it was, it was a way for me to transcend that small world, you know? Mm. And I was no longer in their – game i was in a totally different game and that was helpful for me because i didn't ever stop to consider what anyone thought about me in new zealand and i did i literally didn't care because i knew people would be saying shit about me 
and um, they're different people still will be and that's just the way like New Zealand is at the moment I hope it changes but it it's at the moment it's pretty bad and it I know a lot of entrepreneurs and they're too scared to sort of step out and be bold because of what their social groups think and I stepped out and just didn't care like I, I it took me like four years five years to to build up enough courage to just not care what anyone in New Zealand thinks or anyone in the world. I'm just trying to I'm just trying to impress myself and continue growing. Where does that leave you with so you you're you're a master of success clearly and you hear a lot of conversation about the difference between success and fulfillment and there's a lot of unhappy millionaires out there. How is it for you on the fulfillment and the happiness side? Yeah, well the big shift I have is money doesn't make me happy personal growth makes me happy. So I could, if I, if I just plateaued making the amount of money I'm making now, I'd be seriously unhappy. And someone might say that's so strange because you're making so much money, but it's not about the money. It's about like the game. It's about continuously growing. And so I don't, money's just a kind of way of kind of measuring that, you know, like I, I intend to pretty much give it all away, like later on in my life. Um, and do like do some some big things socially, which I've always wanted to do. And right now, I spend less on myself than I ever have in my entire life. I have no cars. I don't buy any fancy clothes. I don't have a. I don't really have like a social life. I I don't go out and out to dinners, or I don't drink. I I have absolutely no ego now when it comes to that sort of stuff. I've pretty much eroded the entire ego completely. And all I want to do now is just, like, be the best I can at the game which I've chosen, which is this consulting and online training, and keep beating myself year after year and help a lot of people, which I'm doing through my training programs, help transcend themselves uh, just the way I did, and and not care what anyone else thinks. Because I know what I'm doing is helping a lot of other people. I know I'm really happy with myself when I keep beating myself and I don't even I don't even buy anything with my money I'm just using the money to for my mission you know I think of it as a war chest for my battle which is to reform the world's education systems because the education systems kind of chewed me up and spat me out there and I found that no one ever talks about like psychology and self-image and all of this stuff and so I want to reform the world's education systems and and bring this into them so that other people don't get kind of stood on like I did because I know there's a lot of people throughout the world that that have those issues. And so my you know in the beginning I started a business because I wanted to make money and be rich. I started my business for purely selfish reasons and that's why all I did with my money was buy stuff for myself and I ended up unhappy. Um, but now I've got a, a mission which is bigger than myself. And so doesn't matter how much money I have. I don't think I'm cool or anything. I don't buy anything fancy for myself. I just put the money back to work trying to do my mission. And I'm not doing it for the money. So that, that's what's changed. So I've, I don't really care about how much money I have. So you've really just fallen in love with personal growth and challenge and getting better and better. Yeah, like if I, I if I'm ever plateauing, I'm I'm unhappy. Like I want to keep evolving myself. I know I've got ages left to go. I know that it's infinite how much you can grow, and I really want to keep doing that. 
and I want to help other people. So it's not just about me. Like I make, I only make money when I help other people. So how much money I make is a reflection of how much help I'm giving the world. So beautiful, man. It's, uh, I could keep talking to you <laughs> for hours about this. It's so interesting. And it's, I know people are going to get a lot out of this and it's going to get a lot of people thinking and hopefully start to get a few people in New Zealand thinking differently and thinking, challenging some of those things, challenging the rugby culture, challenging the drinking culture, challenging tall poppy syndrome. I've got a name for it. Go for it. And I'm actually thinking about writing a book on it or a long article on it or something, but I call it the number eight wire noose. <laughs> wow, beautiful metaphor. Because, you know, that number eight wire mentality that every blokey dude in New Zealand's brought up with, like, you know, you be a bloke, like, you know, wear stubbies, drink beer, like, uh, have a yard glass for your 21st, play rugby, and, you know, it's just all about rugby and barbecues and, and eating meat and this sort of stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's – people, when you're in New Zealand, you think that's how you be a man. And if you – the problem is, is if, they, if you're not into that stuff, then you feel like you're not a man or you feel like you're wrong or something. You feel um, like there's something wrong with you. I know I did. And so it's really I, – I refer to it as like that number eight wire noose. Because if, you, if you're not an all black or if you're not a bloke or if you don't want to just drink beers and wear stubbies, I mean, you're kind of rejected in New Zealand. But, but that's, I mean, that's so many people. That's a huge amount of people. Not, most people aren't playing rugby. Most people don't fit into that stereotype, which is reflected in our suicide statistics and our violent statistics. So we have a society that is struggling in that regard with like masculine identity. Yeah, exactly. And like, that's why I like people in New Zealand would never kind of dudes in New Zealand never talk about their weaknesses. And because they try and just be a bloke and be a man and trying to gruff it out. And, you know, it's kind of like you just you just drink beers and you 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 have you have barbecues and stuff. And and that's that's kind of being a man in New Zealand. But like New Zealanders have really tough looking like exteriors but what you'll find is they've got the weakest minds and we see this with our sports teams like with the warriors they're one like those guys are the toughest dudes in the world physically like they're big they're strong they're like mean looking like you definitely wouldn't want to get tackled spear tackled by like a warrior and so they look all big and stuff but you just watch them play as soon as something goes wrong, as soon as they, they have the – as soon as things are a little bit against them, they crumble. Under any sort of mental pressure, they just they, – they're gone. It's like they're not it's – like it's like they're now big warrior-looking men, but they're cowards inside. And I don't mean that with any disrespect. I'm not calling them cowards. I just mean like mentally they lose that – they lose that strength and – I find this is very common amongst all New Zealanders is they often have very tough looking images and personalities and everything. But inside there's, they're very fragile because often a tough looking ex, a, a tough looking image, self image is often made to protect a weak inside one. And when you have a very strong, like mental belief in everything, you often don't care what anyone says about you and you don't put, you don't try and make look like anything, you know? Like when I was in New Zealand, the reason why I bought Ferraris and went out and, and socialized and stuff is because, you know, I had a massive ego because I wanted to kind of protect the fact that I felt like I was still like no one. 
And now I didn't get really successful until I just completely eroded all of that ego. And now I don't have any of it. I mean, I just, I look like a normal person in America and I don't do any flashy things here because I'm not, I don't, I'm not trying to prove anything to anyone like that. And I'm not trying to be anything like that. I, and so, because I've got a strong mental toughness now, and I think that's really missing with New Zealanders is, you know, people are always telling them how they need to look tough and strong by drinking beers and having barbecues and wearing stubbies and playing rugby and all of this. And people are telling them how to look like it and everything, but no one ever tells them how to be it inside. Um, and that's why I think we, as soon as guys start doubting themselves inside and they, they can't talk to anyone or anything, I think that's why, and because of that number eight why mentality, I mean, I think that's why it, that statistic is the way it is. In, in that vein, I want to ask you one last question about your dark side, just in that speaking about weaknesses or whatever, I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the dark side. Every man has one, whether they can um, cover it up or whether they can find a way to embrace it and use it to their advantage. Uh, but before they do that, before we ask that question, how can people find you? Who are you looking for at the moment? How can people enroll in your course if, if that's what you're looking for? Sure. Well, if people just go to uh, my website's consulting.com, um, I think that's so awesome, if, by the way, that you own consulting.com. Yeah. And so if people just go to consulting.com, uh, they'll be able to find out more information about the online trainings, which we do and everything. And yeah, that's, that's how you find me. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. So do you have a dark side? Do you feel like there's still a dark side there and how do you embrace it? Yeah, you know, I think the, the term dark side, it gets a real, it's got a lot of uh, stigma around it because it sounds kind of bad and evil and everything. Um, but most people have a, a, a misunderstanding of what a dark side actually is. And so every human being in the world has a dark side. There's no way to not have one because uh, we basically have these like binary poles for all of our beliefs. And whatever you think you are right now, like whatever character you've defined yourself as, like who, who Sam Ovens is or who Sam Ovens was back then or whatever, like that's the side you put in the light. And so who you think you are and who everyone else thinks you are, that's the side in the light. And now the polar opposite of that is the side in the dark. And so what? It, like everyone has a dark side because it's the opposite of, of who you are. No one has. It's the opposite of your, your current character and identity because you can't have two binary poles in the, in the light um, at one time because that's, that's just not the way things work. And so... That's everyone's dark side. So everyone has one. I definitely had one back then. I have one now, but I'm just very aware of it. What is it now? Well, back then it was, you know, trying to be good at business and everything. And I had a very strong ego and the side I put in the light was was very strong. And what happened is I had this other one in the dark, which was bottled up big time. And it always slips through, you know, that you can't keep your dark side completely at bay. It's impossible. What happens is it wants to start coming out and it it has ways of going out like that, like Freudian slips, which Sigmund Freud discovered, like little slips of the tongue um, and also uh, different like the, the profile pictures people have on Facebook, massive like Freudian slips in a modern day sense. Uh, the music people listen to and everything that's another Freudian slip. Like I've become very good now at reading people without even speaking to them. I can tell what their dark side is. 
because it comes through in ways which they don't know, but someone who's very aware of this stuff can just see it immediately. And also by the way they talk, I can tell which one's alter, which one's ego, and I can tell what they've got there because um, I've become very good at spotting this. But what happened is my dark side like ruined me before because it like whatever I would build up, my dark side wanted to tear down because it, it's kind of like the, the counteracting force of, of who you are. It, it, as soon as you start becoming not, the dark side sort of kicks in and pulls you back down and regulates you. And often people are in these like ups and down cycles. You'll see it a lot by people in New Zealand who are like, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're very disciplined and very straight with everything. And then every now and then they go out and they drink and they just lose the plot. <laughs> like that's, that's someone's dark side coming out. And you can't keep it at bay. If you try to keep it at bay, it'll just get you. It'll either make you miserable or you'll, it'll, it'll come out in a rage and like you'll regret it. And so I struggled with it for a long time in New Zealand. And then I only learned, I only really discovered it when I really moved to America and stopped drinking and all of this stuff. And I really, I really learned what, what it was and everything. And so, you know, there's, there's this quote by Sun Tzu in The Art of War, which I'm pretty sure is referring to this, um, referring to dealing with your dark side. But it says, um, it says if, you know your, if you know yourself and know your enemy, you need not fear 100 battles. But if you don't know yourself and you don't know your enemy, so that is if you don't know who your character is and if you don't know what, it, what your dark side is, then you're going to lose every battle. So it says if you don't know yourself and you don't know your enemy, you're going to lose every battle. Then it says if you know yourself but you don't know your enemy, which is if you know who your character is and who you are, but if you don't know your dark side, then for every battle you will, for every battle won, you will have an equal defeat. And what that means is if you know yourself but you don't know your dark side, whatever you build or whatever progress you make to becoming a better version of you, your dark side will tear it down and it will regulate it. It's like whatever whatever upwards motion of improvement you have, the dark side will have that equal pulling force downwards. And that's what I found. I was just up and down, up and down. It's like I couldn't escape this thing. And that was myself, that mean point between those two. And so then it says, but if you know yourself and know your enemy, you need not fear uh, the result of 100 battles, like you'll win all of them. And that's very true. Like when I didn't know my dark side in New Zealand and I ignored it, I couldn't escape this. I, I, was, I, I couldn't escape it without leaving the country and stopping drinking and everything. I mean, I was successful, but I couldn't become more successful, right? And so when I started to learn, like, in order to really learn what your dark side is, you, you, you've got to stop numbing the pain. And what I used to do in New Zealand is I'd drink because that's what all the New Zealanders do, especially the men. They just get fucking drunk all the time. And that's how you be a man in New Zealand. And so in America, I stopped drinking. And what, it, what I noticed is it was like I started to really deal with my pain. So like as soon as I felt pain, I would, instead of just drinking, or going out and doing stupid stuff, I had just dealt with it. Like, you know, as soon as I, I really learned to look pain in the eyes and I, I stopped like sedating myself and numbing myself and everything. And I just took it front on and I, and I addressed these issues. 
and I really started to learn about myself. Like I'd never really learned about myself. I'd, I'd just, I would kind of hide from the dark side. Uh, when, when I was on the good side, like things were great, but half the time I was in the dark and I'd just try and escape it and avoid it. And that meant that I, I constantly was having issues. But when, I, when you stop numbing yourself, when you really learn to face the music and really look the pain in the eyes, you learn. Like you learn this other side of you. And then once you, once you become aware of the two things, you no longer have issues anymore because you know your dark side and you know how to catch it. And you also keep a balance. And you're, you're not trying to have an image about yourself, which is, uh, which is false. Because anyone who just has a purely, like, I'm amazing attitude is, is, is lying because no one has that. Everyone's got a dark side. And I'm totally open with mine. I tell it to my employees, my girlfriend, my uh, staff. Like, uh, we're, we're discussing it on this call, which is going to be on the internet for the whole world. And so I... I I, I'm always, I'm always conscious and aware of what it is, and by doing that and putting it in the light, I, I don't really have a, a bottled up dark side. You know, it, I'm, I'm open with it. I'm honest with it. I'm not trying to escape it, and so when I, when I do that, I, I never have issues, and I'm not trying to escape anything. It's generally the escapism that, that ruins people. And it makes people want to numb it and hide from the pain and sweep everything under a rug. But I've just learned to face everything. Like so, any so issues. Is your dark side that feeling of pain? Is that how you see it? It's the feeling of, of wanting to destruct something which I've built. So, you know, like if I'm making progress with health and fitness, it's that feeling that, you know, want to have like some really bad food or sleep in or, or, or don't go to the gym. Or with business, it's that feeling of wanting to like uh, to just not try and just to kind of or like to sit self sabotage. Who's self sabotaging isn't aware of their dark side because that that's the force that's regulating their improvement, um, and that's why people self sabotage because anything they build up, their dark side will rip it down. And the average point in between those two things is their defined self. That's their character, and so. Yeah, that's that's knowing it. It's it's that force which wants to make you do things which you don't want to do. But when you don't hide from the pain, you can catch it. You're like, aha, I see. You're like, this is I've got it. Like, I've found, like I you learn the markers, you learn the turns. So like if I'm making massive growth and improvement forwards, I can feel it come on. And I can kind of feel the temptations there and everything. And because I don't try hide from it or ignore the thoughts or ignore any of the feeling, because I just I just fully address it, I I never do any self sabotaging behavior. Yeah, and I guess when your and staff I, and everybody around you, your partner and everything knows about it, they can you know, when you're honest about it, they can call you out on it to help you guide through it. Help guide you through it. The biggest thing is being honest with it yourself. Like I find like a lot of people, like I know my friends ones because I'm so good at reading it now. It's like no one can even hide it from me if they try. It's like I can look at someone's Facebook or talk to them for two minutes and I know it all because I've, I've taught myself really how to find this thing and there's no hiding it. And because, because I'm so aware of it now, 
I know I can't hide it from from people who know who have the same level of knowledge as I do. So like I know that I'm not fooling everyone if I try and try and sweep it under the rug. And I I feel like almost embarrassed about it now because the the self-image I was trying to keep in New Zealand and everything for someone who was at my level of like consciousness now like I would have looked like the biggest idiot because someone would have, I would have just been able to read everything about myself back then and think, Oh my God, this guy's got some issues. And so I know that I can't hide it. I'm not fooling anyone if I do it. And, and because I don't escape, I don't try and escape from the pain. I just deal with it. And like I, once you start trying to escape the pain and sweep it under a rug, it gets really bad. And that's what I did in New Zealand. And I used alcohol to do a lot of it, partying, and I used my ego to really try and mask it. That's why I bought so many stupid things because I had to keep building up this image for everyone um, of who I was because I was so scared of like this other force inside me. That's awesome, man. Thank you for your honesty there. Thanks for opening up. I really appreciate it. No problem. Sam, this has been amazing. I, again, I could talk to you forever about this. I know this is just so, such a valuable work and such a valuable conversation, especially for people in New Zealand. So, again, I want to um, say thank you for coming on and giving your time. I know it's valuable time. So, I really appreciate it. No problem. Hope this helps people. Absolutely. Thanks, man. Thanks. There you have it, folks. My conversation with the wonderfully insightful Sam Ovens. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you want to learn more about Sam or any of the courses that he's offering, you can go to his website at consulting.com and find out all the information you need there. As always, I appreciate if you could share the show around on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the social media. Go on iTunes and give the show uh, a five-star rating, if you will. Why not? And give it a review. It all helps. And I'll be back next week with episode number 24 of The Nathan Seawood Show. That was The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men.